Well, welcome everybody to the Practice Makes Faithful podcast. This is our first episode. I'm sitting here with Paul. Uh, my name is Ben Patterson. We both work here at Grace Chapel Church. I am the assistant youth minister and Paul is our lead minister. And we are super excited to get this going. This is an idea that Paul had a little while back as something that we can do to help our members and our church to continue some of our conversation. But then we thought maybe this can go a little bit farther. So maybe you're not connected with Grace Chapel. You're new here. You're here checking this out. And we are so excited that you are here to check out this podcast, Practice Makes Faithful. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, this is something we've been excited about for a while. Yeah. Um, it's something that uh, that took some time to come together. But but here we are with, uh, with the Practice Makes Faithful podcast, hoping that really the things that we talk about on Sundays with our folks here at Grace mm-hmm. Chapel, but the reality is you don't have to be connected with Grace Chapel, I think, to benefit from the content yeah. on this podcast. So if you're joining us not connected, as Ben said, uh, with Grace Chapel, we hope you benefit as well and are able to take some of the things that we talked about, talk about here mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. put them into practice because that's what faithfulness looks like. Yeah. Again, it's not practice yeah. makes perfect. We know that's not the case, especially as we walk the Christian walk, but it's practice does make faithful. And so that's mm-hmm. what we hope is that we uh, are able to walk more faithfully with Jesus Christ as followers, as, as his disciples, as we go through uh, these these podcasts together. Yeah, that really would be the goal of this podcast is that it's not, hopefully it's not just another podcast you listen to, that this really is something that can help challenge you in your own discipleship journey, challenge you yes. on maybe one step that you can take towards faithfulness this week. Yeah, I think we could say not just informational, although we definitely will be giving information, not just informational, but also practical. Yeah. That's what we really hope out of this. Yeah, and we'd love to hear how this is helping you. Feel free to reach out to us. Please subscribe to our channel. Go ahead and share this thing out there, and uh, we, we hope it becomes a really helpful resource. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. So let's dive in for this week. We are kicking off a new series at Grace Chapel. Yeah. Kicked off a series called A Better Story. A Better Story. And Paul, in that message that you said this was an incredibly important series. Why, why is that? Why do you think that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, because of the content of the series, this is a, this is a very important one. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of different narratives out there that we could buy into. And I'm not just talking about a political narrative or, you know, um, you know maybe a personal narrative, whatever that is. I, what I'm talking about really is, is kind of a cultural narrative, a narrative that helps <laughs> shape the way you live life. Yeah. Um, so it shapes the how of life, but then even more importantly than that, it also shapes the why of life. And so mm-hmm. um, we're going to be looking at that during this series called A Better Story. Can you just give me an example of a cultural narrative just so that we're all on the same page of what that might look like? Okay. So, um, you know, if I could, maybe I'll just speak specifically to the narrative that we described yesterday mm-hmm. um, and, and to, to say, you know, what is the current dominant cultural narrative? Um, let's let's just do just a quick little bit of history uh, as well. You know, I'd say uh, up until maybe a hundred years ago, um, sometimes a little less, depending upon what area of, of our country you live in. Um, but up until about a hundred years ago, basically everybody bought into the the Christian narrative or the Judeo-Christian ethic or the the culture that comes with our Christ-centered values. Mm-hmm. Church was very important for most people. Uh, in fact, I shared a, a quote yesterday from uh, a book by a guy named John Mark Comer. Called, uh, the book is called Live No Lies, in which he basically says that there was a point in time where the Christian worldview 
uh, held a place of honor in our society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he claims, and he says it pretty strongly, that we moved from being at a place where the Christian worldview holds a place of honor to now to one where the Christian worldview almost holds this place of shame within the dominant culture. And so, you know, I asked the question yesterday, why is that? What has happened? And so we had these, uh, this kind of these twin or parallel advents that, that took place, I think, within our culture. The first is the rise of what's called secular humanism. And I know two kind of big words that we're maybe not used to using all that often, but, but don't shy away from them. They're not that, not that difficult to understand. You know, secularism is just basically the belief that, um, that, that we don't need religion or what we need is really freedom from religion. So we're going to do this without any uh, religious or spiritual influence whatsoever. That's what secular means. You know, so mm -hmm. it, can be, it can be a belief that we need to part ourselves from religion, sometimes is described as secularism, but it can also just be a statement of fact that something exists with no religious or spiritual influence whatsoever. So it's secular. That's just what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, humanism, on the other hand, is kind of the belief that you and I as human beings, that we're the pinnacle of all that exists. So there's nothing, no higher power than us. You and I, we're, we're, we're it. And it's also kind of surrounds this belief that, uh, that human beings are basically good. Mm -hmm. Now, that exists, that belief exists um, in opposition to what Scripture tells us about ourselves. And that's, that's hard to swallow. And we even as Christian people, we don't like to hear the fact that we're not basically good, that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Um, you know, our righteousness, Isaiah says, is like filthy rags before God. And so Scripture tells us we're not basically good, which is why we need to be redeemed in that sense. We, we can talk about that more another time. But there's, a, there's an opposition there between what humanism believes and what Christianity teaches. And humanism teaches, and this is significant, again, that, that human beings are basically good. Okay, mm -hmm. so we're, we're at the top of everything that exists. Um, so we control our own destiny in some senses, and we're also basically good. So you take, take secularism and humanism, then you get secular humanism when you put those two together, is basically the idea that, that you and I, uh, again, we have the ability as human beings without the influence of anything from the outside, without any religious influence, without any God telling us how we ought to live, God being a moral influence or anything like that, we have the ability to determine and define our own morality. So that's what secular humanism basically means. So you take that thought process um, and what it has led to is what people describe as the postmodern worldview. Mm -hmm. um, and in postmodernism, uh, the three of the pillars that we talked about in postmodernism yesterday, three pillars within postmodernism that arose out of secular humanism. First, it's that you and I, uh, we define and we make our own truth. In other words, there is no absolute truth. We make and we define our own truth. Um, two, that we also make and we define our own meaning. And then that the most important thing in life, what matters most in life, is that you're happy. Okay, so, so define your own truth, define your own meaning, and be happy above all else. Okay, so that, that's kind of secular humanism and postmodernism. They really do go hand in hand. And, and before we get too critical about postmodernism or the postmodern worldview, we need to understand that postmodernism arose as a real critique of modernism, which said that everything is absolute and everything can be known and we can take science and test everything. And, and I think people looked around and they said, no, that, that's not true. Everything yeah. cannot be absolute. Yeah. 
But postmodernism shifted to where everything is now relative, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? So relativism, postmodernism, postmodernism go together. It's kind it, of an it, overreaction on yeah, the other end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the extreme pendulum swing. Yeah. And so and the truth lies somewhere in between. And, and we get this certainly in Scripture. God tells us, you come to me for the things that are absolute. And yes, there are some things in life that are relative, mm -hmm. um, that are undefined. But there are some things in life that are very well-defined and truly absolute. And so that's kind of uh, where, where we began yesterday. And understanding the dominant worldview within our culture right now, um, I, I believe, is really important for, for a number of reasons. Um, you know, so I, that's why I believe this series is important. We, we've got to understand the dominant worldview, especially as we try to engage the culture around us. But also mm -hmm. because the culture around us has an influence upon us. That's really, that's helpful. That's helpful. So we have these different cultural narratives yep. uh, of the, and we're kind of in this first message setting up this other this other narrative that our culture is yes. putting forward as contrasted with our Christian. Yeah, absolutely. To the better story that, that we yeah. have to tell. That's exactly right. That's good. That's that's helpful. So one of the things that really stuck out to me, and I, I noted this down, is that you had mentioned that we are kind of. At times, we can start to take on, as Christians, as people, we take on some of the cultural narrative yes. into our own narrative, and it becomes our narrative as well. So like, I guess we start to compromise our own Christian narrative and take on pieces of that cultural narrative. I'm just curious, where do you see that happening in, in the church, in, with Christians? Where do you see us doing that? Yeah, that's a good question. Let me... Um let me back up real quick and say that, that I believe that is one of the reasons, again, why this series is so important. Um, because as it relates to understanding the dominant narrative of the culture around us, we need to be able to understand the, the dominant narrative so that we can relate to the dominant, dominant narrative. But we also need to understand the dominant narrative to be able to see where the dominant narrative has influenced us and influenced the story that mm -hmm. we tell mm -hmm. or that we believe um, about about life. So, um, to kind of try to answer your question, let me uh, let me jump to a, a quote that I shared yesterday by a guy named David Foster Wallace, mm -hmm. who um, you know he he unfortunately uh, he, he had struggled with mental health and a number of other things. Also, at times struggled with nihilism, which is uh, the belief that there is no meaning, value, and purpose in life, and, and you can get to that existential belief um, when you don't have a foundation for what gives meaning, value, and purpose to life. Nihilism is sometimes the, the natural conclusion of that. And so uh, David Foster Wallace was, a, was an author, brilliant author, uh, brilliant cultural commentator, kind of right at the heart of the postmodern movement at one point in time, and then became, as he, you know, later in life, became a critic of the postmodern movement as well. And so I uh, want to read with you real quickly, uh, read to you real quickly a quote that I shared yesterday, and then we'll flesh that out a little bit and connect it with back okay. with your question. So uh, this is what David Foster Wallace said in an interview at one point in time. He said, what's been passed down from the postmodern heyday is sarcasm, not a stretch there, right? Cynicism, <laughs> kind of, you know, just we see nothing good. Mm -hmm. uh, a manic ennui, suspicion of all authority. I mean, these are all familiar things. We've we seen them. We, we know this is true in the culture around us. And he said, these are the things that are the result of postmodernism. He says, suspicion of all constraints of conduct. In other words, no, no boundaries, no ethics, no moral values whatsoever. Don't tell me what to do. So suspicion of all constraints on conduct, a terrible penchant for ironic diagnosis of unpleasantness, 
instead of an ambition not just to diagnose and ridicule, but to redeem. So in other words, again, this very cynical view, this very negative view, and all we want to do is criticize what is instead of being part of the solution, which is sometimes part of, again, the yeah. postmodern worldview. And he says, he says this about that. And he says, you've got to understand that this stuff has permeated culture. So it's everywhere. I mean, in every nook and cranny, this thought process, these patterns of thought, this way of thinking has permeated culture. He goes so far as to say this. He says, it's become our language. We're in it so, we're in it, or we're so deep in it, that we don't even see that it's one perspective among many possible ways of seeing. So it's, it's the dominant language, the dominant narrative of our culture. And I think, you know, so we can look around at culture and we can say, well, yeah, that's true about those people out there. You know, it's kind of the way we sometimes think yeah. in the church. Uh, but the reality is, again, the dominant story of culture, because we live in culture, is going to have an influence on us. And, and, and certainly, we're called to be in the world. I mean, we know the expression, right? Be in the world, but not of mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. So we're called to be in the world, but the reality is when we're in the world, the world is going to have an impact upon us. It's going to influence us. The dominant narrative of, of culture is sometimes going to impact the, the narrative that we believe, and it, it can, for some, become their dominant narrative as well. You know, I, I've heard people in the church say, live your own truth. That's what matters mm -hmm. most. Um, I've sat in my office with, uh, with couples who want a divorce because they believe that, um, that God, I mean, they're not happy now, right? So mm -hmm. that's why they're looking to, do, to, to split. Mm -hmm. They're not happy. And they believe that above all else, God must just want for them to be happy. Well, where did that come from? Yeah. Did that belief that God wants me to be happy more than anything else come from Scripture? I mean, our podcast is called Practice Makes Faithful, not Practice Makes Happy, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. God's, God's dominant <laughs> desire for us is that we be faithful and that out of that, a deep mm -hmm. joy would arise inside of us. But, you know, and it's hard for people to hear, but no, God doesn't just want you to be happy. He wants you to be faithful and in that faithfulness to Him to find deep joy. So yeah, the narrative of culture has influenced us as well. There's, there's no doubt about it. And I think... David Foster Wallace was speaking directly to culture, saying, culture, you're not even aware of the way that this dominant narrative and postmodernism has shaped you, but we also need to be introspective and say, hey, church, we may not be fully aware of the way that the dominant narrative has influenced and shaped us and shaped the, the story that we believe in, the story that's that we really tell that's also. I think that's really helpful to see how it's shaped us personally because it is easy to see it as something that they're struggling with. Right. It's someone else that's removed from you. If you are a Democrat, it's easy to say, oh, this is something all Republicans do. It's something you're Republican, Democrats do. You know, right. It's always the other the rather other. than right. looking at it as, no, actually taking some time to reflect and see how I've been influenced by the culture around me. Yes. Or for us as Christians, maybe it's these other another brand of Christians per se, a different right. denomination or but just to really stop, reflect, to look at your life, to see how it lines up with culture and where you have bought into that, I think that's really helpful. Yeah. It's helpful to know those stories so that we can see where which story we're really living out more. That's yeah, good. yeah, agreed. It's powerful. And you know, I, I think we know from from uh, you know 
self-help, but, but obviously, you know, if you read the Psalms as well, I mean, those moments of introspection um, are mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. formative in our growth as, as human beings, also as Christ followers. And so to take a step back and to ask difficult questions of ourselves, it's a must yeah. if we want to yeah. grow at times. That's good. So you really leaned into yesterday, scripturally, into a text from Matthew mm-hmm. um, that you had focused on. Can you share a little bit about that and why you, know, why you leaned into that passage? Yeah, I, I think um, you know, this, uh, it's, it's two short passages from Matthew chapter 16. Um, two stories that really center on Jesus and Peter, both of them do. And they're two really, uh, two really contrasting stories. Mm-hmm. It's like the highest moment of Peter's life and the lowest moment of Peter's life, or at least probably to that point, uh, happened at least in Matthew's gospel, right back to back. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. um, you've got this moment where, uh, where Jesus addresses his disciples and he says to his disciples, who do you think I am? And the disciples respond to Jesus by saying, well, some people in the crowd think this, and other people in the crowd think this, and there are other people in the crowd who think this. And Jesus says, okay, I didn't ask you who the crowd thought I was. Um, I'm not asking about them out there, which is funny because we were just talking about that. I'm not asking about those guys out there. I'm asking about you right here. Mm-hmm. Who do you say I am? Uh, who do you say that I am? And I, I, I wonder exactly how that dynamic played out. Was there silence for a bit? Did Peter jump right in with his bold declaration, Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God? Um, I don't know exactly how that played out, but we do see Peter, who often was so bold in, uh, in action and in word as well, uh, kind of putting himself in front of everyone else and saying, here's, here's, what, here's what the deal is. We, I believe you're the Messiah. You're the anointed one of God. You're the Son of God. Um, and, and Jesus says, that, that's exactly right. And, and blessed are you, Peter. And, and upon your confession, this rock of a confession that I am the Messiah, I'm actually going to change your name to rock. Uh, upon this statement that you've made, my, my church will be built. So this huge moment for Peter, can you imagine, like, I got this one right. Yeah. Nailed it yeah. in front of all the <laughs> other guys. Um, and then right after that, Luke says, from that time onward, uh, Jesus started to tell his disciples that he was going to have to go to Jerusalem. And when he went to Jerusalem, he was going to suffer, eventually be killed, and then he was going to you know, rise again, basically. So he's going to suffer at the hands of the, the religious ruling class, um, and then also, of course, the Romans who uh, put him to death through crucifixion. And so Peter hears these words, and... Peter's response is to take Jesus aside, and Luke tells us, or Matthew tells us, sorry, that Peter rebuked Jesus. I mean, that's the word we have. Peter rebuked Jesus. He says, never, Lord, that will never happen to you. And Jesus' response, probably one of the strongest responses he had, maybe, probably, I'd say certainly the strongest response he ever had to one of his own disciples, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. maybe even stronger than some of the, the strong words he has for the Pharisees. Um, certainly in the way he said what he said. Now, obviously, there, there's a time when he tells the Pharisees, your father is the devil. Uh, so, so, yeah, these are probably on par, these, these harsh statements in a sense, or strong statements. Jesus says to Peter, he says these words. He says, get behind me, Satan, because you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. 
And so in a sense, it's almost like uh, Jesus says to Peter, listen, you have the wrong story. Yeah. You've got the wrong story about me. You've got the wrong story about the way that God works in this world. You've got the wrong picture of who God is and what I came to do in his name. You've got the wrong story, Peter. And in fact, this story didn't originate with God. It didn't even probably originate with you. Actually, the words that you just spoke, they're Satan's words. I, I don't think that when Jesus looked at Peter, he called Peter Satan. I mean, he just called him rock, you know. So I think he's actually saying those words you just spoke, Peter, they're like a temptation from Satan to me to do things differently. If we see, you know, in, in the Gospels, we see Jesus being tempted and uh, Satan tempted Jesus to come to power in a way that was not the way that God had wanted him to or to become a different kind of king than the king that God had established mm -hmm. him to be. And so I think Jesus is reacting to that and saying, get behind me, Satan. Those mm -hmm. words are directly mm -hmm. from Satan, but a strong, I mean, incredibly strong uh, rebuke of Peter's rebuke of Jesus. And so we see, I mean, Peter's story and, and, and the story that he has there in, engaging with Jesus teaches us that you can have the wrong story and there are dire consequences to having the wrong story. And so that's how this relates to this larger conversation that we're having, the discussion that we're even having today, the discussion in the message yesterday is, well, you can have the wrong story and having yeah, the wrong story uh, leads, to, leads to pretty dire consequences. Hmm. That's really helpful. So Paul, as we boil this down, what, what would you say, what's one practical takeaway that you give our audience, people listening, that you would say that this is something that we need to do out of this message? Yeah, so I'm going to make the assumption that predominantly we're talking to people who follow Jesus, people who are part of church culture mm -hmm. on some level or another. And we've got to be honest, I mean, the church has a culture. And in, in many ways, that's good. If, if the church culture mirrors Jesus' culture, then that's a really good thing. That's, that's what we want. That's what we want more than anything. If the church, church culture has a discipleship culture, that's what we want more than anything. Again, we want to be uh, like Jesus. Um, but we've got to be careful because sometimes the church can take on a culture that actually doesn't look like uh, Jesus culture. And so I talked about uh, yesterday um, when we think about the dominant culture in the world around us, um, it's important for us to not be on either side of the margins in reaction to the culture around us. So oftentimes in the church, um, we kind of rail against culture. You know, we like to be culture warriors. We mm -hmm. like to get caught up in the culture wars. You know, all these things that uh, you've probably heard discussed and maybe in other podcasts or seen talked about on the news. You know, yeah, th there are culture wars. There's no doubt about that. Um, and we could try to set ourselves up as, as culture warriors, um, but that's not often the most helpful mm. pursuit. It really isn't. What, what that tends to do is isolate us and alienate us from culture. And culture is made up of people who think a certain way. And so if we yeah. isolate ourselves yeah. and alienate ourselves, it's really hard to be in the world and not of it if we completely isolate and alienate ourselves from the world. Then you're not in the world anymore. You're, you've isolated mm -hmm. yourself, mm -hmm. not just from the world, but you've also isolated the world and alienated the world from you. And so now there's this huge dividing wall between the church and the world and, and our call is to reach and engage the world. Oh. So, so that's not a helpful way. It's not helpful to rail against culture and always stand in judgment of culture. In fact, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul says, I believe it's in Romans, he says, you know, we, we don't need to judge the world. We're called to judge, 
what happens inside the church. So I'm not here to judge the world. So we're not called to rail against the world. We're called to engage the world with the love of Jesus. So that's, that's one thing. That, so that's one caution. I think the other end of the spectrum, we can be at this place where we're, we're ignorant of what's happening in the culture around us. We don't even take the time to understand the culture around us. And again, two things happen when we choose not to try to understand what's happening in the culture around us. One, um, again, we just said, we're called to engage the culture. If you don't understand the culture, it's really hard to engage that which you don't understand. Mm. Really, really difficult to do that. And so it's almost, again, we're, we're in this post-Christian, um, we're in this time where really our, our country, our nation is post-Christian. And so as we are engaging a post-Christian culture, we have to, like missionaries who engage a foreign culture, learn that culture so that we can engage the culture. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. That, again, that, that, that's the first kind of caution when you don't understand the culture. The second is if you don't understand what's happening in the culture around you, you're gonna, vol- you're gonna fall prey, you're gonna be a victim to what the culture around you is doing and the way the culture around you is trying to influence you if you don't understand culture. So if you don't know what's happening, if you've got your head buried in the sand, it's going to happen to you. It's going to happen to you. I said yesterday, here's the trouble with not having the right story. If you don't have the right story, then the the wrong story will have you. Or if you've got the wrong story, the wrong story will also have you. Mm -hmm. You you will be a victim of the wrong story if we don't have the right story. And so uh, there's a lot at stake. And that's why it's important. That's why, again, I say... I think this series is an incredibly important one because of the message at the heart of this series. We need to understand what's happening in the culture around us because we've been called to engage culture and give culture a much better story. I talked a little bit about yesterday about um, a guy who's a psychologist at the University of Toronto, a guy named John Verveke. Mm-hmm. And um, John Verveke is not a Christian. He's definitely a spiritual seeker. He's got a, a pretty interesting YouTube series that you could go and find a podcast series as well. Um, and and in, that, in, in that podcast or YouTube series, he, he makes this point that postmodern culture, our postmodern way of viewing the world has led us to this place where we, have, where we are currently in the midst of an existential meaning crisis. We're, we're lacking for meaning, purpose, and value. He engages mostly college students this understanding that we are, we are struggling to find meaning is resonating deeply with college students who are currently uh, probably the most influenced by postmodern culture. And what he has found in his research is, is that we are currently at this place, um, you know, and for any reason that someone ever chooses to take their life, it breaks my heart. As a mental health counselor, um, I, I understand the problems of mental health and why sometimes people uh, who are in the midst of a mental health crisis end up making mm-hmm. choices um, that, that just are truly heartbreaking. Yeah. What is heartbreaking to me is some of Verveke's research here recently reveals that, that a, very, a rapidly growing number of suicides in the Western world are happening not tied to mental health crisis or to a mental health crisis or to an issue of mental health. So not a mental health crisis, but a meaning crisis. Hmm. People looking around and deciding that there is no meaning, value, and purpose in life whatsoever. So, so here's what, why this matters so much to us again. Um, we as the people of God have got to understand the culture around us 
because we believe that the story of God gives us a meaning, value, and purpose that we can't find anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so railing against culture isolates us from culture. Not understanding the culture makes us either, make, we either fall prey to the culture or we don't understand how to engage the culture. None of those things work really well. So we need to understand what's happening in the culture around us so that we can engage the culture around us and share with them the better story of God. So if someone is tuning in today and they, they feel like they don't understand the culture, they haven't really been listening much and they feel like, no, they've had their blinders up to it. Mm-hmm. Where would you recommend they start? I mean, you mentioned that <clears throat> John Verveke series. Is that something? Is, do you have any recommendations yeah. of someone? So here's what I'll say with, about John Verveke. I'd say um, John Verveke I would agree with his observations. Again, I'd Mm -hmm. say he's at the place of being a spiritual seeker, so he's got some interesting ideas that I wouldn't fully agree with. Um, I I think I would start with, uh, I would highly recommend John Mark Comer's Live No Lies. Okay. I think that would be a great place to start. It's a really good place to start. Just read that as well and would also second that recommendation. It's excellent. Yeah, excellent book. I I would start there. There are other good Christian resources you can go to to try to understand culture. You can also just try to read a little bit, read up on secularism, humanism, secular humanism, postmodernism, and then just spend some time thinking through the implications of some of those things, especially kind of these three big pillars of postmodern thought. You make your own truth. You make your own meaning. and, And nothing matters more in life than happiness. Allow yourself to critique um, those things that arose as critiques of a previous way of thinking. Um, but allow yourself to critique those things and then sit back and see how really the worldview and the better story of God, where all where those three pillars of postmodern thought fall short, the beauty of the goodness of God comes in and fills that vacuum in an amazing way and gives us a, a truly rich and satisfying understanding and view of life, which, which will continue as we, as we move through these next three weeks in this podcast, we'll really start to kind of fill in the blanks on that. So I'd say as well, yeah, go and check those things out, but keep tuning in with us as well. Yeah. We're going to continue to talk about this over the next, uh, the awesome. next several weeks. Awesome. Hey, well, thank you, Paul. This was Thanks, a man. great conversation. This was very helpful. Hope this is helpful for y'all and mm-hmm. you're able to take some steps on understanding culture, understanding our own narrative so that you don't so that you live no lies to quote john mark comer that's right but thank y'all for tuning in today we'll see you next week yeah god bless and see you then